and welcome to SearchCast, a podcast hosted by Isaacson Miller. My name is Rhett Sosby, and I'm a people and culture specialist here at the firm and a producer of this podcast, along with Devin Benjamin, our podcast content manager. I'm pleased to introduce today's hosts, Julia Omatade and Nick Strand. Julia is a senior associate at Isaacson Miller, working primarily in the academic medicine and STEM field. A scientist by training, Julia received her PhD from Emory University, where she used advanced microscopy to investigate the cellular and molecular mechanisms underlying brain development. Julia is passionate about science communication, policy, and women in science. Nick is an associate at Isaacson Miller, working primarily in the healthcare group. Prior to joining Isaacson Miller, Nick received his PhD in pharmacology from the University of Washington and completed his postdoctoral fellowship at San Diego State University. Nick's expertise is on the role of different cellular signaling pathways in regenerating animals. Our guest today is Dr. Lou Muglia. Lou is the president of the Burroughs Welcome Fund, an independent nonprofit medical research organization that provides grants for biomedical research, STEM education, and career development for scientists. Prior to this position, Lou served as the Vice Chair for Research in the Department of Pediatrics, the Division Director of Human Genetics, and the Co-Director of the Perinatal Institute at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, and was the Vice Chair for Research Affairs in Pediatrics at Vanderbilt University. As an endocrinologist and researcher, Lou is a world-renowned expert in the role of hormones in the birth process and the maternal genetic response. Lou earned his Doctor of Medicine and Doctor of Philosophy in Molecular Genetics and Cell Biology from the University of Chicago. We are thrilled to have you, Lou, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to Julia and Nick. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Brad, for that really good introduction. So, Lou, on behalf of Isaacs and Miller, I'll just thank you again for joining us today. We're pretty excited to talk with you, so I'll just dive right in. So to kick things off, why don't you tell us a little bit about the mission of Burroughs Welcome Fund and also what attracted you to this role? Well, thanks, Julia. And just Julia, Nick, and Red, I'm so pleased to be having this conversation with you. As um, you know, I've only been president at the Burroughs Welcome Fund since January of this year, but I've had a longstanding relationship with them beginning in 1995 when I was one of their first career awardees in the biomedical sciences. And what really resonates with me is their mission. Um, What attracted me then and what attracted me recently to engage even more deeply with them was their philosophy and mission statement that the Burroughs Welcome Fund serves and strengthens society by nurturing a diverse group of leaders in biomedical sciences to improve human health through education, empowering discoveries and frontiers of the greatest need. And They have particular attention in certain areas around that. One is early stage investigators, people just at the nascent times in their independent careers where they can really use a little bit of a jumpstart and help in terms of funding and support, and particularly for physician scientists and endangered species right now. They pay attention to underfunded, undervalued areas, and then through all of their programs, diversity is a major consideration, whether it's specifically in our diversity enrichment programs, but every award program we have, we look at racial and ethnic diversity, we look at geographic institutional diversity, we look at gender, we look at sexual orientation. We take all of these things into account because Burroughs Welcome Fund believes to get diverse voices involved generates the best science. So I was very excited to be put in this role um, as president um, to really move this um, forward. Uh, And the organization itself was very attractive to me 
because we can do things in a way that larger academic and governmental organizations cannot do. We can be flexible, nimble. We can invest in higher risk, higher potential reward areas, and we can build careers in a sustained fashion. So those things all really attracted me to this position and what I hope to move forward in the future. That's excellent, Lou. And certainly with your longstanding relationship uh, with the Bros Welcome Fund, uh, I'm sure you're seeing some unique opportunities here. And I'm just wondering, uh, as you move forward, kind of what are your priorities and focus areas going to be during your tenure there? We recently have embarked on what we call a terrain mapping exercise, where we try to set our agenda for the next several years. And one of the joys I have in this position is to set strategy and priorities together with our board and our program officers and our entire staff. And um, we continue to have those components I just talked about, early stage investigators, physician scientists, underfunded, undervalued areas, and diversity as core foundational principles of the Burroughs Welcome Fund. But we also see new opportunity, unprecedented opportunity to address some of the world's greatest challenges. For me, one of those is climate change and human health, a pervasive problem that we need creative, talented young investigators to really um, take the mantle on and move forward. We see increasing opportunities in big data um, to use artificial intelligence and machine learning, um, but also do it in a theoretical, more hypothesis-driven fashion. And then last, science communication and marrying science and the arts is really one of the priority areas I have personally. To better communicate um, how science is done to the public in a visually as well as verbally captivating way, and also to better convey very complicated data now that emerges across scientific disciplines, again, to bring those new insights and team approaches to solve the most challenging problems. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Lou. So I'd like to now make a segue and talk about biomedical research, which is quite a robust and broad domain, where it's been and where it's going. So there's been a lot of talk during this pandemic about how COVID-19 is affecting science. And though that's true, and we'll get to that in a bit, it's safe to say that really science is ever evolving. It's dynamic. And so if you even just look at the advances and questions that have surfaced just in the past 30 years, for example, it's, it's nothing short of extraordinary. Every decade, every year, it's revealing new questions, new methods, and new tools for chasing these ever-elusive answers. So my question to you is, you know, in your opinion, what major breakthroughs and developments, for example, genomics or nanotechnology, have we seen in the past decade? And what are things to watch out for that are still to come? Uh, really great question, Julia. I, and, you know, I think we have seen really phenomenal advances, um, things we never would have imagined mm -hmm. in terms of our ability to sequence and analyze DNA, sort of genomics. Um, metabolomics, proteomics, right. single cell RNA sequencing, um, this aggregation of big data that now data is no longer our limiting factor. It's, it's how we use it. And it's not just around the biological components of what determines health and well-being. We also have now an increased appreciation of how important, how overriding even social determinants are in shaping health outcomes. And recently um, with the you know, continuing blight and challenges of racism that must be considered and addressed, how we incorporate that into our thinking. So to me, the real challenge, opportunity, and excitement comes 
is how do we put all of this information together to understand individual health? Mm-hmm. We can gather it, we can prioritize it, and then how do we use it to drive health care and innovation? And in my philosophy, preventative care to optimize everyone's long-term well-being. And I see enormous opportunity for that, incorporating um, issues around climate change and human health as well. I think incorporating environmental data, air pollution, water pollution, uh, temperature data into how we're thinking about doing big data science and biological sciences is going to provide an unprecedented opportunity to um, have impact. It's going to take, again, new strategies to analyze the data and integrate the data. Right. And then I think, as I had mentioned previously, present it in a way that's comprehensible when the, there's so much complexity. Right. And it's so funny that you mentioned that because when big data first started emerging, the question was, how does this interface with precision medicine? What does this do for science? How is this going to revolutionize science? And now that really the questions are kind of uh, the second phase of storage and utilizing it. And how do we extract information from this data? So even that, even that one segment is kind of ever evolving. So let's connect the dots between what we just talked about in BWF, the Burroughs Welcome Fund. How are these developments specifically affecting organizations like BWF? Well, it certainly has us reshape our calls for applications and programs to really call out these new areas that we think can have unprecedented impact. So for now, all of our programs have specific requests for initiatives around climate change and human health, um, around artificial intelligence, machine learning, data visualization, thinking about incorporating social determinants, and then again, thinking about how diversity plays into this institutional diversity and um, and individual demographic diversity to answer these questions. I think we've taken that on in a way we've never really done before and um, thinking about how we can use that um, to really both do better science and also communicate it to a population that always isn't on the same page in how they appreciate the potential that's there. There's still, I think, a lot of distrust in certain, you know, um, components of our our nation that um, don't appreciate, you know, the well-being science can do. And, you know, I think that's one opportunity we have now with COVID-19, because what's going to solve COVID-19 and what's going to bring us back to a more normal life as we had lived previously is scientific discovery, vaccines, therapeutics, interventions that um, prevent and treat disease. So Lou, one of the things that's really interesting about the Burroughs Welcome Fund is that you exist as this non-governmental, uh, you know, non organization that is really allowed to kind of follow what you feel is the right course of action for advancing science. And just wondering, as you evaluate these ways forward for science, what is the role of society and kind of the, the outside pressures on scientific advancement? And how do you think about the needs of society as you come up with these different uh, areas that you're looking to move forward in? It's a, it's a really great question, Nick, because I think there are sort of competing priorities um, when we think about advancing the best science and then what society and outside pressures want. I think, I love the quote, that um, universities have departments and the world has problems. 
And often those departments are not aligned with solving problems because the problems don't fit one department. They're multi-influenced, multifactorial, and need complicated teams and solutions to really remedy them. What society wants is solutions to complicated problems. They want deliverables. They want to see positive impact and change. And I think one thing that organizations can um, be a little bit too quick to do is to overpromise where we are in terms of our knowledge base and discovery in terms of really having something that is implementable to make change. So I think we have to be realistic with the, with society and the public in terms of what is ready to be translated and implemented, and then always have an eye on the discovery early phase pipeline to be able to invest in big ideas, blue sky science that has enormous potential, like CRISPR-Cas9. You know, that's revolutionizing everything we do in biomedicine right now. And nobody would have guessed by studying this sort of primitive DNA recombination system, it would have the impact it does right now. So as an organization, we view the basic biomedical discovery component as essential to maintain the pipeline. And we look forward to things that are ultimately going to deliver solutions to society's biggest problems, adverse pregnancy outcomes, cancer, other disorders, um, infectious diseases, especially neglected infectious diseases. So Mm -hmm. um, I think being able to convey that um, sort of raises awareness of what we need to do as a scientific pipeline to really be able to function optimally. And that's the way Burroughs Welcome Fund thinks of of its role. We want to function implementation like our Innovations and Regulatory Sciences Award, where we try to push um, findings into clinical practice, but we also have very fundamental basic sciences. Excellent. And certainly, uh, we're at a time now, certainly in my lifetime, where the public has never been more focused on the scientific community. Obviously, we're we're talking now about COVID-19 and just how prevalent it is in all of our day-to-day conversations. I mean, the people I talk to in my family who aren't scientists, uh, they know all about, you know, Dr. Fauci. They know clinical trials. They understand antibodies and herd immunity. So some of these ideas uh, that have really kind of been siloed into the science are becoming more mainstream. Uh, But on the other hand, there's still a lot of things that are going on kind of, you know, outside of the, the spectrum of coverage that we're seeing on our local news, uh, that is really kind of being changed in some significant ways. And I'd really love your take on what you're seeing happening, you know, in the labs around the country here. How is COVID-19 really impacting science and research? I think it's impacting it in, in many, many ways. Uh, one important way is I think it's raising, again, the importance of doing science. So I think we're getting students that, you know, want to solve problems that didn't know exactly what they were going to do for their future. Recognizing a career in science um, offers opportunities to, again, impact these big questions, um, some of which we never would have predicted, like the emergence of COVID-19, other things that we've been talking about for a long time, like um, climate change. But they're big issues with big questions. What I think we're doing is seeing a way of working a little bit differently as well. Much more of what we do now has gone to computational analysis. Again, with so much big data out there, um, many laboratories are virtual laboratories using only the um, wet lab space to do the kinds of animal experiments and uh, other things that you need to prove the computational findings. So we're working much more, I think, in, in that domain. And 
team science has emerged over the last three or four years as being really critical to solve big problems. And I think we're seeing more and more of that, whether it's basic scientists partnering with clinicians and um, pharma to bring things into clinical practice, or it's cross-disciplinary teams integrating social determinants, social justice, and basic biomedical sciences in a way we just haven't seen before. It's interesting you brought up that last point there around uh, society and things like the social determinants of health, because that's really uh, an important area here. So how do you see COVID-19 affecting how our national biomedical research enterprise approaches some of these different policy and societal implications in the arena there? Well, again, I think we have to understand how social determinants disproportionately affect impoverished populations, minority populations, and and others that um, are at risk because of their social status, whether it's because health behaviors are compromised, um, nutrition is compromised, and they all have biologic ramifications as well. The social determinants act on the human body and underlying well-being to exert their effects. So it's really bringing these things together to understand how you begin to level the playing field, mitigate some of the true, you know, um, increased exposure at-risk populations have, and and devise strategies on a public health scale that makes sense in terms of delivering um, better care to a broad population, both in terms of underlying knowledge, but just getting even what we know there right now to them in a more effective, fair fashion. Great. So I'll pick things up. So something that I want to segue into, and you really can't talk about the scientific enterprise in the United States without talking about imbalances and kind of inequities. And what does that mean? And so depending on your vantage point, and I say this from personal experience, science can be largely homogenous in terms of the population, right? So even just reflecting on my life, I was one of the only one of the few African-American students in AP Biology. I was one of the few African-American students in the science building in undergrad. I then transitioned to do NIH-funded extramural research, funded by, luckily, grants to bolster diversity in the sciences. And I was one of the few people there. Um, This trend continued into my PhD. And so we see that distinct populations are underrepresented in science women, they face imbalances and inequities that prevent them from going up the ladder, becoming professors, and then also taking on roles in academic leadership. And so I would love your view on how funders, how leaders, how supporters in general of scientific research, how do they, how do we ensure that we're continuing to build an inclusive, diverse, and equitable community? I think there are lots of barriers in the way. And so I'm leaving this question intentionally broad. I would love to get your take. To us, this is one of the most critical, high-priority issues that the scientific community faces today is how do we broaden the diversity in the scientists, the investigators, the teachers of tomorrow. And we've taken this very seriously at Burroughs Welcome Fund. So again, we've invested specifically in diversity enrichment programs where we engage minority scholars from around the country at formative stages. Our graduate diversity enrichment program for graduate students our postdoctoral enrichment program for postdocs, and then every award mechanism we have, 
we specifically seek out talent um, in uh, diversity scholars, reaching out now more strongly to historically black colleges and universities and other organizations that were not as well represented in some of these programs. But I think one of the barriers has always been, again, minority scholars never saw themselves as being those faculty members of the future because there were no role models for them. And I think generating those role models is really important. So at Bro's Welcome Fund, we've recently invested in what we call near-peer mentoring programs, where we have individuals that are capable of talking to their experience as minority scholars to people one step behind them. So we have new faculty members talking to postdocs, postdocs talking to graduate students, and generating this connectivity of Burroughs Welcome Fund scholars and their trainees, importantly. So it's not just limited to our scholars, but we want to build the networks of the people we've supported through our award mechanisms to bring in diverse scholars into their um, into their groups. Additionally, we're partnering with um, science communication organizations to bring more diversity voices into the discussion, particularly around issues that affect them, that they want to address, because we know those questions will be different. So we're building pipelines for physician scientists around diversity. We're building uh, pipelines for STEM education around diversity. And I think we have to do it across across the board. We, we've had conversations with the American Association for the Advancement of Science about thinking about how we might implement their sea change program, um, not only for higher education, but for K through 12. So for us, we think we have to impact early in the pipeline so we can have individuals envision themselves as those investigators of the future um, in ways that they haven't seen models of necessarily in the past. Right. That's excellent. And one thing that I'll just hone in on that you said that really struck me is the representation piece, right? So among the many barriers, representation is one of them. It's huge. And so when you think of a scientist, if you were to survey, I've not done this experiment. um, I haven't seen the data, but if you were to just survey broadly the American population, what is your image of a scientist? I'm sure Bill Nye, the science guy, or Einstein, or Watson and Kirk would pop into their head. And that seeps into your unconscious, whether you, you know it or not, particularly if you have these things are compounded by other barriers that you're facing. So um, huge kudos to, to BWF and the work that you're doing there. It's really important. One of our scholars recently has published a series of children's books, specifically with um, children of African Hispanic and other minority uh, ancestries um, doing science, mm-hmm. and they're they're really great books. And we've bought those books for our our public schools here in North Carolina to be distributed because we do want to create that model of starting at a very young age, picturing this is what I right. can be. Exactly. And the key that you just said is a very young age. All of these impressions are are formed very early. And though, of course, you can dispel them later on in life, having that there really sets you up for success. It sets up the avenues that you think you can go in. It sets up the classes you're interested in. So again, that's just wonderful. So we're we're at a time of change, really. Um, If you think about society, 
crises like this pandemic, they really bring about real change also in leadership and both who is leading, but also I think more importantly in how they are leading. We're seeing it in search all the time. The things that we're now looking for in leaders beyond the typical characteristics that are unique to each institution are, can this person lead through ambiguity? Can they lead without having all the answers in front of them? Can they reason with this moment of social reckoning by being responsive, by being nimble? So my question to you, and it's a two-part question, is firstly, how has your leadership evolved or adapted to the uncertainty that's going on right now? And the second piece is, what have you learned about management that will make BWF stronger in the future? Well, for us, I think my notion of how we do business um, has certainly evolved and changed over the last six months. Being in academia for 30 years, running a laboratory, being in administration, we were heavily scheduled for meetings constantly. And you sort of get into that routine where you go into work, you're scheduled from the time you get there until the time you go home. And then you try to find ways of getting the things that you weren't able to accomplish during the day done. And I think in the current time, we've come to realize that many of those sort of pro forma events that were scheduled that often had relatively limited impact actually are detrimental and that you can do work from home, from other places, that you can prioritize your time to get work done quietly and thoughtfully um, without having to travel great distances, without taking up time commuting without risks associated, and probably with some environmental benefits from not traveling as much as well, because we're doing much less global travel right now also. So that has a very positive, I think, um, uh, climate change environmental footprint as well. So I think that that's been critical. I do think, though, there is still a critical role for in-person meetings. Um, There was the Aristotle project that Google had several years ago. And the things that they found best about high-functioning teams was that there was a high degree of social empathy and everyone was able to speak equally without intimidation in the course of the meetings. And I think that piece of social empathy as we're working now virtually um, is a little bit more of a challenge to really perceive and be sensitive to. So I think we still have in-person meetings um, to the extent we can given um, uh, the number of people we can have together at, at one time. But as we move forward, We will be doing many more things virtually because there's not a reason to have a lot of travel to Burroughs Welcome Fund headquarters for 20-minute meetings that we could do virtually um, just as effectively and save everybody a lot of time, money, and and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So I think that's been good. You mentioned ambiguity and uncertainty, and there has been no greater period of ambiguity and uncertainty for the fund that I think than the last six months with what the economic markets have done and are likely to continue to do. Um, At Burroughs Welcome Fund, we are not an organization that goes out and tries to raise donor funds. We were established in 1995 with a substantial endowment from the Welcome Trust in the UK. And we've grown that by wise investment Mm -hmm. over the course of the past um, uh, years uh, in, in a diverse portfolio. That said, we are at the beck and call of the stock market and other other revenue generating um, sources. So how do we plan for that? 
Um, we have a team of advisors that I have relied on very heavily to help us guide us through that. But also, I am transparent with our staff and our, our, our program officers about how we can fund things. We convey that there's this degree of uncertainty. We're going to budget conservatively. And I think it gets everyone on the same page. I think to make decisions where you're not conveying why you're making them in terms of changing funding patterns, priorities, I think is what generates a lot of um, concern within organizations. And we've tried to be especially transparent during this time, acknowledging the ambiguity that exists, not hiding it, and recognizing um, it's going to take time to sort itself out. Absolutely. And that's a, a really great point on the, the ambiguity and just working through that. And uh, certainly scientists are somewhat used to working in uh, the ambiguity in their day-to-day -day work. So hopefully things are moving well in that direction for you there. But it also kind of jogged this thought into my head about, you know, all the changes that are going on right now with leadership. It's really an inflection point in how we think about leadership. And I think that's also true of what we're seeing in science right now, where the, this pandemic is really revealing some of these inequities about who practices sciences and how they conduct their work. So with meetings, you know, being able to do meetings virtually is great. But for people who work at the bench, as you mentioned earlier, uh, they're going to have some issues with access. Uh, so I'm just wondering, you know, as we think about some of the different changes that are going on in society and what are going on specifically in science, you know, how could we generate something positive from what we're learning from this pandemic? So thinking back to like the pandemic of 1918, the Spanish flu, we saw the field of virology just explode because they developed new technologies and really started to understand how viruses work. So do you see any pathways forward through some big scientific advances that could be coming because of this? And then even around uh, healthcare and the social determinants of health and how we kind of placed a greater emphasis on preventive medicine now. You know, I think we are understanding now how we can better utilize our laboratories to be consistent with things like social distancing, um, healthcare practices that, you know, were always there. Um, but we didn't really pay attention to because they never arose in this kind of fashion um, before. So I think the way we um, generate laboratory safety will get us back to using wet laboratories as effectively, if not more effectively and more safely than we ever have. So I think that is one potential positive benefit. And I think it also really has us carefully consider what we want to do in terms of animal experimentation. We want to do the critical experiments. Um, with, with live animals, there's not a substitute for being able to do that to prove function in very complicated biological systems. Um, but there are ways of better simulations, modeling that can happen on your laboratory desktop computer or your home desktop computer before you even do that one critical experiment. And I think more and more we're, we're partnering as a global community of scientists where again, different components of the same experiments will be tackled in different laboratories because of specific expertise that that can be assembled then into a synergistic story later on um, in a way that again, just continues to um, propel a positive trajectory does not limit us in any way. And I think the global connectivity has never been greater. When you talk about really positive changes around that, when you think about workshops, when you think about lab meetings, you can invite anybody from anywhere in the world right now to your weekly lab meeting virtu by virtue of Zoom, and they can be fully engaged and um, 
contribute their data, their insights in a way that was not possible before. And that's going for all scientific symposia, um, engendering much greater global community participation than could be afforded previously. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So we're actually coming up near the end here. We've made really good progress in a short amount of time. We've touched on COVID, diversity, scientific breakthroughs, the public understanding. So what I'm going to take us now to is the role of science philanthropy, specifically science philanthropy, and moving forward science. So it would be great to get your take, Lou, on this moment. What is the role of science philanthropy moving forward? And how does COVID shape how these organizations will better serve the public? Yeah, it's a great question, Julia. You know, I I think there's never been a more important time for science philanthropy organizations than there is right now. And why do I say that? I think science philanthropy organizations um, have the ability, the desire to take bigger risks, to take on questions with harder answers, uh, and drive discovery forward, um, starting from basic science through to implementation in a way that I think many traditional funders view as too risky. Um, they would rather have more, you know, RO1 NIH grant type steps forward in incremental change rather than really thinking about do we take a risk on transformative change? And for some of these questions, it's going to require that. And I think science philanthropy uniquely does that. Even more so, though, I think science philanthropy has a capacity to pivot, to readjust its priorities, to invest in really emergent problems in a way that other budgets and funding mechanisms do not allow. And I think that's been one of the joys for us that we've been able to reprioritize fundings to specifically address COVID-19 issues, um, providing new grants, providing new workshops for our investigators to help them navigate through this very challenging period um, in ways that other organizations cannot do. And actually, we're looking for ways of supporting our our awardees um, to make sure they get their work done with the difficulties that have emerged just around having Mm -hmm. kids at home and being responsible for their education which has never happened before. So can they reprioritize some of their award money to be able to um, have help at home to be able to do the work that they need to get done to keep their science moving forward? We feel that that's a very valuable investment at this period of time. So we're excited about those kinds of opportunities in, in the science philanthropy organization. And one thing about the science philanthropy groups that I'm part of, I'm part of the Science Philanthropy Alliance, which is an umbrella that brings together many, many scientific philanthropy organizations. We want to partner with each other. We fully realize that we cannot solve these big problems individually. So how do we work together? How do we get all of these great teams that have been working in their own organizations to think communally? And with their advisory committee members, with their boards of directors, to really engage as broad an audience as we can. And then being able to leverage that to even bigger funding. Um, Most organizations don't have the capacity to fund to the same extent, for example, the NIH does, you know, which funds in the $30 billion a year of of, uh, scientific biomedical research. When I think about it, that's actually a relatively small number, a very small number compared to the 
to the economic impact COVID-19 has had on the world in the last year. We could easily double that number and hopefully thwart problems like this in the future um, and save millions of dollars by investing in discovery at a preventive stage when it's much more cost effective. Right. That's such a great point, Lou. And really, you know, the phrase that stuck with me is the high risk, high reward, right? And so when you think about science and particularly when the public thinks about science, an analogy that I often use is think about it as a mosaic, as, as a picture that's comprised of smaller pictures, and you can't really see it until you step back. Every single lab, every single PI, all the postdocs, all the graduate students nationally, we're working independently, but towards a very shared goal that's oftentimes not realized until you step back. And so when you're thinking about where will impact come from, it's really difficult to predict where impact will come from, but you need that high risk, that high reward, those projects that, as you mentioned, the quote-unquote traditional funders um, perhaps can't always fund. And then that interplay between innovation versus incremental science, that that tension that's always there, um, you know, something that we have to wade through. And so with the science philanthropy organization and those philanthropy organizations that are part of that, that's just so critical to make sure that, you know, that high risk, that high reward science continues to maintain a pretty deep penetrance. Optogenetics, genomics, computation, these are things that affect everyone's work, whether you're a molecular biologist, a geneticist, whether you do pathology, whether you're a physician, scientist, or just a physician. These are things that really are changing science. They're they're going deep into every field. And so we'd just like to underscore how really important it is that things that might not be funded um, traditionally, they, they're receiving the attention. Very well stated, um, Julia. You know, one one quote I like from the um, Nobel laureate Albert St. Georgie is, discovery is seeing what everyone else has seen, but thinking what no one else has sought. And that can be because you bring together teams of individuals from diverse disciplines that really prompt each other to think differently. It can be someone from a different mm-hmm. discipline just exposed to it and working in isolation that sees something different and doesn't have a vision homogenized. And then it can bring these diversity voices into the picture that have had life experiences and exposures that allow them some insight that no one else has had. So we really think all of these things are critical. Some solutions are going to be global solutions. Some important solutions are going to be local solutions where it's actually people living in those areas that solve the problem. So I think there's enormous opportunity right now. As Absolutely. You say. Lou, truly, we can't thank you enough. I feel that we've covered so much in such a short time. Um, Nick and I are so pleased that you were able to join us. It really was a pleasure. We wish you and the Burroughs Welcome Fund all the very best as you continue on in this important work. So with that, I'll turn it back over to Rhett, and he'll take it away to close this out. Thank you all for that conversation, and thank you to the listener for tuning in. We would love for you to subscribe to this podcast so that you can catch up on our old episodes, as well as be the first to hear new ones. And we'd also invite you to visit imsearch.com for more information, or follow Isaacs and Miller on our socials, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram, at Isaacs and Miller. Isaacs and Miller's podcast content provides general information only and does not constitute recruiting guidance or advice. No representations or warranties are made with respect to the accuracy or completeness of this content. All liability from the use or misuse of Isaacs and Miller's content is hereby expressly disclaimed. 
the content contained in our podcasts should be used only at your own risk.